The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Civil War, as we all know, was fought between the agricultural north and the industrializing I'm sorry, the agricultural south and the industrializing north. We all know that. Or do we? Every now and then a new book comes along that shines a fresh light on old beliefs about the war. Professor Adam Dean has written a book that shows how crop rotation, Central Park, Yosemite, the letters of Union soldiers, and other seemingly unconnected phenomena all combined to paint a persuasive new picture of why Northerners went to war with such enthusiasm and earnestness in 1861. The book is called An Agrarian Republic, Farming, Anti-Slavery Politics, and Nature Parks in the Civil War Era, and we'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this Beautiful April evening in 2015 from the third floor of the Brewster Building here on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Part of the UNC system, but not speaking for the system, not speaking for the Board of Governors who visited us last week or the Board of Trustees or the Chancellor, the Provost, the Dean, 
nobody, just for myself, and likewise my guest will speak only for himself. Having gotten that out of the way, we go to this week's events. It is a lovely time of year. Today was, uh, we're into the, the last full week of classes, a few more classes next week, and time to start grading final papers, getting ready for final exams. Uh, I've been away the last five days, gotten well behind in my correspondence, uh, visiting uh, the Wolverine State, where the Red Wings are rocking in the Stanley Cup playoffs so far. The Tigers are off to the fastest start in a long time, maybe all the way back to 1984. Got to see the number one fan of Civil War Talk Radio, my mother. Hi, Mom. Uh, hope all is well. And uh, spent several days at a conference and reunion of the University of Michigan's New England Literature Program. Listeners to the show know I often despair about academic administration and especially the uh, waning commitment of the public through its legislators to pay for education anymore. Uh, But then sometimes things come along and rejuvenate the spirit. Forty years ago, a couple of professors at U of M decided to take their students for uh, summer, early spring uh, semester out to New England and live in cabins in the woods and read Thoreau and Emerson and Robert Frost and keep journals and engage in some experiential learning. It was a kind of wild experimental idea. Uh, I went with the fourth cohort in 1978, and this year the program celebrated its 40th reunion. It does give one uh, encouragement to see that an experiment like this can succeed and thrive and find new ways to teach young people uh, to teach themselves, to develop a love for whatever subject might be, poetry or history or anything else, uh, or the natural world, where the students really teach themselves and uh, push one another and and don't simply absorb information. Uh, So there are good things out there in the world, and and the visit to uh, NELP, as we call it, was uh, a very uh, a very restorative weekend. Uh, a, a busy one, though, and I do owe uh, a lot of emails. I spent today planning, uh, part of today planning the uh, This Hallowed Ground tour of Civil War sites with the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours people. If you're interested, uh, I'll be leading a trip in late May. Contact Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Uh, in terms of planning, I owe my uh, friend Robert a note who's planning his own trip up to uh, Maryland and Virginia to see Civil War sites, and I promise to get right on that after the show. Uh, I promise to do other things, all the things I've let get behind, for example, not updating impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War Companion website. Uh, Mark Gaffney keeps it up to date when I send him the information needed to do so, and I've been negligent in that. So if you've been to the site and not seen the upcoming shows, that's not Mark's fault, it's mine. And I've sent him just now the next few weeks worth of shows. While you're listening, I'll tell you who they are. Next week we have Matt Hulbert, who is co-edited with Joseph M. Balon Jr., The Civil War Guerrilla, Unfolding the Black Flag in History, Memory, and Myth. Uh, Guerrilla warfare continues to be a hot topic in the Civil War era. On May 6th, Tom Parson, 
author of Work for Giants, The Campaign and Battle of Tupelo, Harrisburg, Mississippi, from June, July, 1864. And I owe Tom a big apology for sending him the wrong date. He was good enough to call in last week on a date that I sent him, but it was my error. So I'm sorry about that. Hope uh, he will forgive me and join us again on May 6th. And on May 13th, Brian Jordan, who's been on the show before, has a new book, Marching Home, Union Veterans and Their Unending Civil War. And look forward to hearing about that. You can, of course, go once uh, Mark has received my message and had a chance to update the site to impedimentsofwar.org. Find out who's going to be on. You can also buy the books of authors that you hear about on the show by clicking on the, the Amazon button there and the click-through sends money to the site, which is always welcome. Uh, and you can also donate directly to Civil War Talk Radio at the PayPal button there. Your contribution is used to buy books or pay parking tickets or hairstylists or whatever. Well, hairstyles really not a not a growing industry in my part as the hair continues to recede. But uh, I can also use it to buy books, and sometimes I do. So uh, your gener- generous contributions are always welcome, as are your suggestions. Uh, a good suggestion came in today for a future guest. I'll be looking into getting in touch there. Your questions and ideas are always uh, more than welcome at the show. Feel free to send them along. Well, tonight's guest, uh, I'm trying to recall how we came across this, if it was a suggestion or a publisher or a self-reference. I I don't even remember. I just do know that uh, once in a while you get these books which restore, uh, as as a visit to New England Literature Program alumni, restored uh, my nostalgia for lost youth of 1978, but also... Uh, confidence in the ability of inspired professors to come up with ways to inspire their students. This book brings out the way that after reading dozens, hundreds of books about the Civil War and thinking, okay, got that part covered, uh, somebody will come up with something different and thought-provoking and intriguing and uh, worth hearing more about. And this book, uh, I think, fits that category, An Agrarian Republic, Farming, Anti-Slavery Politics, and Nature Parks in the Civil War Era. The author is Adam Dean. He's Assistant Professor of History at Lynchburg College. And uh, Dr. Dean, are you there? Hello. There we go. Uh, Dr. Dean, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. It's a uh, beautiful evening out here in central Virginia, and this is my first podcast that I've been on. And so thank you so much for inviting me and for those kind words about my book. Well, delighted to have you. This is not my first podcast, but it was not all that long ago that I learned that this was a podcast. We started doing (laughs) these shows in 2004 before the word was was invented, and I felt like... uh, uh, Monsieur Jordan in uh, the, the bourgeois gentilhomme who discovers he's been speaking prose his entire life when he finds out what prose is. That's how I feel about this podcast. Uh, that's what I've been doing. I've been doing digital humanities. I've been way ahead of the curve. Anyway, um, so you are 
I'm looking at the back of the book, assistant professor of history at Lynchburg College. Uh, So assistant is the the breaking in rank for listeners fortunate enough not to be in the academic world. Uh, (laughs) How how long have you been there and where did you come from before? This is my fourth year here at Lynchburg College, and I was lucky enough to get a tenure-track job here. I'm turning 31 years old tomorrow, so I'm a pretty young guy as academia is concerned. And I came out to Central Virginia in 2005 to earn my Ph.D. at the University of Virginia, which I did in 2010. But originally, I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, and born and raised. And then I went to college at the University of California, Los Angeles. So many guests on the show have uh, roots, uh, family ties to the Civil War, or uh, I grew up in Michigan, but you know the Wolverines were part of it. Uh, what from Utah and California? What brought your you to be interested in this era? Well, I figured out I had a great-great-grandfather who was a Civil War veteran and later very involved in the Grand Army of the Republic, which was the Union Veterans Organization. But I didn't find that out until I was interested in the Civil War already. Uh, Growing up in Salt Lake City, Civil War was completely off everyone's radar. It didn't get much attention in middle school or in high school. And my passion for the topic really came in college. I had a professor at UCLA named Joan Waugh who teaches a overwhelmingly popular Civil War and Reconstruction class. And I not only took the class, and those classes are very big, it's over 350 people, but I had the opportunity to have a discussion section just with her. And she really opened me up to a whole new world and lots of interesting questions about the Civil War that I would later pursue in graduate school. I, that is true. So many of us in the field that we had some some inspiring professor, some mentor along the way. Uh, Joan Wall was on this show in uh, December of 2000, uh, 2009, I think it was. I remember yeah. seeing her at a conference not too long before that. And uh, her work on U.S. Grant and others is, is really uh, uh, you know, some of the seminal work in the field. So, uh, uh, yeah, you learn from the best. That, that's a good way to get into it. So, looking at the title of the book, um, one, if, if you were in the midpoint or end of a career, and I saw a subtitle, Farming, Anti-Slavery Politics, and Nature Parks, I'd say, oh, he's given a bunch of talks on unrelated subjects, and now he's packaged <laughs> them together in an essay book to uh, get another publication. But I'm, was, was this actually a dissertation originally? Uh, or or are these really different? This was a dissertation originally. It changed a lot from the dissertation. I had to think more deeply about the argument, and I did more research, particularly out west at Stanford University. But the whole project started when 
I was in my third year in the PhD program. And for those listeners who aren't or unfamiliar with the joys of PhD programs, that's kind of when you're supposed to decide on the dissertation topic. And I was really kind of struggling, had a hard time finding what I was going to write about. And I had a teacher at the University of Virginia, actually taught in the law school, named Charles McCurdy, excellent, excellent historian. He said, hey, Adam, you should check out this court case, Hutchings v. Lowe. There's not a lot been written about it. And this court case involved the legality of Yosemite State Park, whether it was legal for the government to remove land from the public domain and create a nature park out of it. And it opened up a whole new world to me of people who were opposed to Yosemite's creation. But if you can stay with me, these people weren't opposed to Yosemite because they wanted to build a dam in it, they wanted to mine it, or they wanted to harvest it for timber. The people who opposed it were a group known as the Radical Republicans who thought that it was taking away individual land rights in the West. And I thought that was just so incredibly fascinating, and I wrote a really good seminar paper for that class and then used it as a jumping point to explore the ways that mid-19th century Americans, particularly those living in the North, thought about appropriate land use. Well, we're going to take a short break and come back in a minute uh, to listeners who are thinking, okay, you know, some people don't like the state taking over private land. What's the big deal? Uh, we'll find out uh, when we come back about the remarkable views of Northerners toward the land use and what that had to do with the Civil War. And we'll find that out from our guest, Adam Wesley Dean, author of An Agrarian Republic, Farming, Anti-Slavery Politics, and Nature Parks in the Civil War Era. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Adam Wesley Dean. He's the author of An Agrarian Republic, Farming, Anti-Slavery Politics, and Nature Parks in the Civil War Era. And we got into this topic. We heard how uh, Adam got into the topic through the nature parks aspect, opposition to Yosemite's establishment. But, uh, Adam, if we could go back to a few decades before the Civil War. Sure. I, I said in the, the very opening, the, the introductory bit, that people learn from their high school textbook that you have an agricultural south and an industrial north. And then anyone who's done much reading knows the North is not particularly industrial yet. But you argue that, that it's not just not industrial, but it, it it's overwhelmingly rural and agricultural, and this has a lot to do with how Northerners see themselves. Can you, can you talk about Northern land use? Sure. Well, just to start out with some demographics, over 14.5 million people in the 1860 census in the North lived in rural areas, while just 5 million lived in cities, in big cities like what we would call New York, Boston, and Chicago. And a little over 60% of the people listed their employment as being farmers on the 1860 census. And so... Yes, the North was overwhelmingly agrarian, and the types of places that farmers worked on in the North were small farms. So it varied depending on if you were in Michigan or New England or Massachusetts, but the average size was between 60 and just over 180 acres. Now, the South was very different partly because of the prevailing soil types in the South and also because of the type of crops being farmed in the South, farms were big. And a lot of Northerners, starting in the 1820s, but really picking up steam in the 1850s, looked at these Southern slave plantations and labeled them as big, inefficient, and destructive of the soil. And this misuse of the land, according to a lot of Northerners, became reflected in Southern politics and Southern society. It proved... Was slavery slavery the cause, seen as the cause of the big land distribution and, and misuse of land, or was it the which was the chicken, which was the egg? I would say that they saw slavery as the cause of the misuse of the land, and numerous 
travel writers wrote that it wasn't an environmentally produced factor, meaning it wasn't because of the environment that these farms were so big. It was because of slavery. And the very famous critic of slavery named Hinton, our helper, even said that, quote, the soil sickens and dies beneath the unnatural tread of the slave, end quote. I hope that was it. (laughs) That's a good one, yeah. But it was something to that effect, and that reflected the idea that by planting a single crop, be it cotton, sugar, or tobacco, and farming it with slave labor exhausted the soil and encouraged relentless Western expansion, which many Northerners in the 1840s and 1850s viewed as a bad thing. And they viewed that small farms, 80 to 160 acres, would prevent the spread of slavery into the West. And that's why the Republican Party of the 1850s pushed so hard for a Homestead Act and why it repeatedly ran into trouble from Southerners in Congress. I thought it was very interesting to uh, your point that in the 1830s, the, the Whigs, the forerunners of the Republicans, opposed Homestead Acts because yeah. they didn't want uh, they they wanted people to focus on the farms they already had and to turn these into what we would today call a renewable resource. Uh, so what changed? Which, which at that time would they would call agricultural permanence. So why did they? What caused them to give that up and and decide no, it's okay to have lots of people move west? I think they lost the argument about western expansion. So, with the election of James K. Polk in 1844 and the ensuing war with Mexico, the Whigs had repeatedly lost the argument about whether the United States should expand, and now the argument came to be how to use, manage, and profit from land. And that's when... The Free Soil Party in 1848, a party who's really only unified by no slavery in the West, adopts the Homestead Act as a means to prevent slavery from moving westward. I was particularly interested in another observation you made that at least until, we'll say roughly 1830, there were there was a lot of national consensus that small farms were the best for a republic. Jefferson famously believed that, you know, the farmers were the deposits of genuine virtue. That the that the ideal citizen of a republic was a self-sufficient farmer, so everybody mm-hmm. should be one. And and this isn't a, a northern versus a southern issue. It's sort of a national belief, but that gradually fades away in the South and and gets replaced by an acceptance of large-scale plantation farming. Yes. And it's interesting you say that because I was tempted, and this is one of the changes I made from the dissertation, to label the Republicans' agrarian views of the 1850s simply as an extension of Jeffersonian agrarianism. But 
I think upon further examination, it's not really that. They certainly, the Republicans are named because off of Thomas Jefferson's party, but they attached anti-slavery to a vision of small farms and land use that Jefferson and his contemporaries never had. Jefferson did see slavery as disappearing if it were dispersed widely enough, which is sort of an odd notion. Uh, that yeah, more the land. idea of diffusion or conditional termination. So by the 1850s in the aftermath of the war with Mexico, now you've got all this land and trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, and, and this leads to the, the, the well-known struggles in the territories, in, in Kansas, for example. Uh, do we see those same issues being played out there, northern ideas of small farm use versus an attempt to move southern plantation agriculture into the state or into the territory, I, I should say. I didn't really investigate Kansas, to be honest, mm-hmm. but you actually see it in both California and even Oregon. This isn't in the book, but in Oregon's Willamette Valley, a lot of southerners had moved there and were farming larger plots of land. And a lot of Northerners who moved there looked at it and kind of said, well, of course they would because, you know, they're coming from the South. And in California, there was quite a bit of discord about whether slavery should be allowed in the state. And in Chapter 3 of my book, I talk about how an agrarian vision of California's future was pretty important to the Union supporters who lived there. And this, when you said you'd gone to school in California, that that made sense because you do talk a fair amount about uh, California, which a lot of, which often doesn't does get overlooked in Civil War accounts. Uh, the I, I was entertained by the description of the the pro slavery uh, shivs, the the chivalry uh, yeah. of the state. Uh, <laughs> That, that uh, to to dismiss them with a nickname that mocks their pretension, I thought was pretty pretty good for the uh, the anti-slavery forces. But in all this talk of what they're fighting over in in California and and really throughout much of the rest of the the first half of the book, nowhere are the anti-slavery forces that you're citing arguing that slavery is immoral and unjust to the slaves. It's all about what it does to the land use, what it does to the character of a republic made up of small farmers. Uh, is that really the dominant thread that you see in, in pre-war anti-slavery? I believe so. I think there's some other dominant threads there. I'm definitely in this book not trying to reinvent the wheel. I really mm-hmm. enjoy William Freeling's accounts of the 1850s, as well as Eric Foner's accounts, both of which emphasize free labor and hostility to slave owners themselves as driving forces of the anti-slavery coalition. But to get at what you're really asking me, no, I actually don't see a lot of moral criticisms of slavery among the Republican Party. Now, they 
people like who appear in the book, like Joshua Giddings and George Washington Julian, who was related to Giddings by uh, marriage, he married Giddings' daughter, they are morally opposed to slavery. But Joshua Giddings tries to tried in 1856 and 1860 to get something in the Republican platform alluding to the mistreatment of enslaved people themselves, and he wasn't even able to get it on the platform. And George Washington Julian would write privately about his hatred of slavery for moral or ethical reasons, but in much of his public speeches, he didn't talk about it. And I think that's because most white Northerners, I hate to use this word because it's anachronistic, but were pretty racist. And abolitionists were perhaps only 5 to 10% of the white northern population. And certainly one could be anti-slavery and support an anti-slavery party like, such as the Republicans without being morally opposed to the institution's existence in the South. Well, this is one of the things I really like most about the book because I'm guessing you experience the same thing in your teaching. It can be challenging to present the argument that slavery is at the heart of the outbreak of the war, which pretty much every historian would would agree with, uh, without having the audience perceive that you're saying, oh, well, then – good North, freedom, bad South, slavery. Uh, when I run into that every single day. And it's so much more complex. And here you, you present an argument that shows how one can uh, capture the North's willingness to go to war uh, as, as enthusiastically as they do in 1861 be, because they're committed to an ideal that involves anti-slavery, but it's not pro-slave. It has the slaves almost don't even matter. It's the institution that is ruining the country. Uh, it, and and the way you frame this argument gives helps put that helps make that clear that, that that one can argue the whole northern vision of a free republic hinges on free labor and private land ownership, and slavery is messing this all up but it's not because it's mean to the slaves. That's very well put. <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting. Thank you. I, I experience the same thing you do in teaching all of the time. And also in the public, people ask me, well, how could the civil war be about slavery when the North was so racist? Or how could the civil war be about slavery when Abraham Lincoln said that the war was to save the Union. How could the war be about slavery when Emancipation Proclamation was not until January of 1863, the final one? Mm -hmm. And the answer is you have absolutely no chance of understanding the 19th century and the Civil War unless you understand this distinction between anti-slavery politics of which the Republican Party was the most mainstream 
element of and abolitionism. You just have no chance of understanding why the war happened. Well, those two are very different. Uh, and, and you tie in some other elements that are, are radically different. Uh, uh, the, the, the Transcontinental Railroad Act, the Moral yeah. Land Grant College Act, the agri- founding of the Agriculture, Department of Agriculture, uh, the Homestead Act, all these things, they, they show up again in every textbook that the Republicans are able to pass their long-sought agenda once the uh, Southern representatives and senators seceded. And that's all you learn, pretty much, is that the the North Northern representatives, Republicans, got to do all these things. But it's rarely, rarely do the books go into detail as to why they did that. Uh, and we're going to take a break in about one minute, so I don't want to start going into detail with that, we'll, we'll jump to that in the next segment. But let me ask for a quick question on this. The um, uh, so many, There's too many things to a quick question. We'll take an early break. If, if I, our engineer is alert and listening, and I know he is, we're going to step out right now and come back uh, and talk more to... Adam Wesley Dean about an agrarian republic, farming, anti-slavery politics, and nature parks in the Civil War era. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Adam Wesley Dean, author of An Agrarian Republic, We've been talking about the the ways in which anti-slavery 
politics differ from abolitionism and how they manifest themselves. Uh, so, Adam, I left off with the litany of accomplishments by the Republican Congress during the Civil War, Transcontinental Railroad, Morrill Land Grant College Act, Homestead Act, Department of Agriculture. You argue that all of these are, in essence, anti-slavery political acts. What do they have to yeah. do with slavery? Pick, pick well, one or all. focus on a vision of turning the West into an agrarian society of white farmers who, by farming small plots of lands for many generations, would build what 19th century Americans call civilized communities. And these communities would also be loyal to the Union. And particularly Pacific Railroad Act passed on in the House in May of 1862 and the Senate in June of 62, that's done before Lincoln even announces the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet. So the people in Congress are thinking, what are some ways to prevent slavery from moving westward since the war might end with slavery intact. And that's the same thing with the land-grant college bill, which Abraham Lincoln signed on July 1st, 1862. And so the timing of these laws and what is said in the Congressional Globe, which is the record of testimony and debate about these laws, gives a pretty clear picture of why they're being passed. So how would building land-grant colleges keep slavery out of the territories? The idea was that a slave plantation can't exist on a small farm and can't exist, and that, that's debatable whether that's true or not, but it's certainly what the Republicans believed, and it can't exist in a society of small farmers who are planting multiple crops and living on the same piece of land for multiple generations. Now, in terms of the Land-Grant College Act, Justin Morrill was from Vermont. And being in Vermont, he saw a lot of farms going defunct because of soil exhaustion. And even before he was a senator, he spoke at various agricultural societies about how to improve land use. And he believed that establishing agricultural colleges in the West would help farmers better manage their land and create a more educated population. One thing that I didn't see in the book, when you talk about this idea of, of learning how to scientifically farm and, and preserve soil and, and make it multi-generational, uh, were many references to Southerners doing this. I'm thinking of Drew Faust's biography of James Henry Hammond. Uh, yes. You know, it shows that there are Southerners who were consumed with trying to come up with agricultural techniques to revitalize or preserve their plantations and didn't want to move west. But 
they don't feature much here. Is this really more of a northern phenomenon than a southern one? No, it exists in the south as well. Two other important characters are Edmund Ruffin, the famous Virginia fire reader, and a lesser well-known Mississippian named Tuttle Audis, A-U-D-A-S. And agricultural improvement or permanence consumed Ruffin's life. So Ruffin saw a lot of people moving to the southwest moving west and leaving their farms in Virginia behind. And it never led him to criticize the institution of slavery itself. Ruffin was a pretty Mm -hmm. aggressive supporter of slavery and Southern secession, but it did lead him to try lots of different things to make the soil fertile. I think he even tried to import some bat guano from the Caribbean to Virginia. So this phenomenon, the idea of the southern soil being exhausted, uh, you point out a lot of northern soldiers write home with their observations that slavery has been a blight upon the land. Uh, they they echo. You mentioned uh, Hinton Rowan Helper. Uh, Frederick Law Olmsted is another pre-war traveler who, yes. who who goes through the South and writes when he's done. Wow, the, the slavery really messed that place up. Uh, so I want to jump ahead, so we don't leave it out. The uh, where we started with Yosemite and Yellowstone. How do these Western nature parks tie into all of this? To be honest, Jerry, it's really more the opposition that ties into this. So parks are created for a whole number of different reasons. Frederick Law Olmsted brings the idea of parks in a lot of ways back from England and believes places like Central Park and Yosemite provided an escape from the hustle and bustle of urban life and an opportunity to observe nature. Now, for Olmsted, private property harmed natural scenery, and his example was actually Niagara Falls in New York, And he went to Niagara Falls a number of times and seems to have been roundly horrified by the amount of people trying to sell him trinkets and knickknacks and charge him for tours. And so he developed an idea that parks should really be public. Now, the same people, George Washington, Julian, Um, Joshua Giddings, Cornelius Cole, who were involved heavily in the Free Soil Party and the Republican Party and big promoters of the Homestead Act, they viewed nature parks, particularly gigantic ones like Yosemite and Yellowstone, as a real threat to individual land rights and to a vision of the West as an agrarian utopia for small farmers. 
And so Julian, in particular, who was from Indiana, fought tooth and nail to prevent Yosemite State Park from being created and fought the creation of Yellowstone as well. But when you talk about the, they favor private land rights, in a modern yeah. context, people think of uh, libertarian arguments and it's my land, I should be able to do whatever I want. But are, are these people not, they're not saying you should do whatever you want. They want this land preserved so that you can live an appropriate northern small farm Republican lifestyle on it. Not, not just exactly. do whatever you want with it. I think George Washington Julian, and this is either in the introduction or chapter four, has a very telling quote about his opposition to Yosemite. Here I found that he said, quote, I think it might have been far wiser to carve it, he's referring to Yosemite, up into small homesteads occupied by happy families decorated by orchards, gardens, and meadows, with a neat little post town in their midst, and churches and schoolhouse crowning all. And that's really an integrated vision for the future of the country. There's a schoolhouse, right, education. Mm -hmm. There's a church, religion. There's all these small farmhouses. There's an orchard. And, and there's there's commerce too. There there's a town, but there it's is. not but it's not industry. Right. And that in a word is the agrarian republic that Julian and a sizable portion of the Republican Party wanted. So it it's getting back to the the cliche of the rural south and the urban industrial north. It's not an urban industrial model that, that Julian and others want, but a northern agricultural model, which they see as superior to the southern agricultural model. Precisely. Now, this gets tied up then in issues of uh, the government's power. You point out none of this works, uh, and we don't have time to go into it, so that's a good reason for all listeners to buy a copy of this book. But the uh, none of this works out. Uh, the country uh, we know today isn't going to be covered with a model of small farms in the same way, uh, especially out west. Why does, to the extent you can in a nutshell, why doesn't the, uh, the great American West become filled with New England-sized farms? The first reason is environmental reality. Julian himself tried it. He was territorial governor of New Mexico in the 1880s, and for those of you who come from the great state of Utah or New Mexico, it's dry out there. <laughs> and you can't, you can't farm on only 160 acres. And the farming that people see now is largely a result of the federal government spending a lot of money on irrigation. So, in a nutshell, small farms, this is, of course, a generalization that's not always true, were difficult 
was a difficult proposition in most of the West. So, so that vision, the Homestead Act, is not going to get you. You can get your 160 acres, but it's not necessarily going to work uh, as an individual farm. The Transcontinental Railroad is supposed to allow small farmers to get their goods to market, but it ends up facilitating giant farms. Uh, right. What about the the reconstruction in the South? Uh, why did that not become a land where freed slaves each worked their uh, their 160 acres? Uh, why didn't that model work work there either? I was actually talking about this in my Civil War Reconstruction class today, and I think the answer is two words, Andrew Johnson. <laughs> ah, that's succinct. Uh, what, what did he do? Well, in March of 1865, Lincoln signed and were approved the creation of the Freedmen's Bureau. And part of the Freedmen's Bureau was that freed slaves and white unionists could lease 40 acres of confiscated or abandoned land. And in the months after the passage of that law, particularly on the sea coasts of Georgia and South Carolina, the Freedmen's Bureau was, in fact, settling freed slaves on small farms. But Andrew Johnson came into the White House, changed the trajectory of Reconstruction, and ordered the head of the Freedmen's Bureau, O.O. Howard, to give the lands back to the former owners who were Confederates and, in many cases, former slave owners. And in the book, you know, George Washington Julian tried in 1866 to pass a Southern Homestead Act, and it did pass, but the problem is that the public lands that were left in the South were not the most desirable pieces of property. And many freed slaves did not have the capital to settle on the lands, buy tools, clear it, and start farming. So the the legendary 40 acres and a mule never does get distributed, and we don't see a... Uh an established, economically established black farming class uh, start. Uh, we don't see it in the West, as you point out, for environmental reasons. And ultimately, by the 20th century, we'll, we'll start to see its decline in the North due to uh, technological, among other reasons. Uh, in spite of that uh, somewhat downer of an ending, this book really does bring together some disparate elements in eye-opening ways and helps uh, answer that question that you point out you're faced all the time with, and I hear it too. How can the war be about slavery if X, Y, or Z? Well, uh, listeners, if you're curious about that, uh, read uh, An Agrarian Republic, Farming, Anti-Slavery Politics, and Nature Parks in the Civil War Era. It is by Adam Wesley Dean, who has been our guest tonight. Adam, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Jerry. It's been an honor. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.